From Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 215. Today's show is brought to you by Green Chef, Pingdom, and Squarespace. My name is Mike Hurley. I'm joined by Jason Snow. It is great to be here in an episode number divisible by five. 215. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Our Snow Talk question this week, <laughs> hashtag Snow Talk, <laughs> comes from our friend Stay, uh-huh. who wants to know. To follow up on upgrading Casey's question from last oh, week, no. oh, where no. is Jason's favorite place to visit outside of California, and what places top his bucket list uh, for places he'd like to go? Uh, so, careful listeners to the Upgrade program will know that in the episode where we discussed that Mike had just returned from his vacation, his, his honeymoon, to Hawaii that Hawaii is my favorite place. So my favorite place to visit outside of California is Hawaii. I would go there every year if I could. Um, This year, um, my kids have a huge amount of time between uh, right before Christmas and like a week after New Year's. It's the perfect time to go to Hawaii. But... um, because my wife has, is, is very wonderful and now has a full-time job where she's providing uh, benefits to the rest of the family, that also means that she's limited in her vacation time and we can't just go to Hawaii. So, you know, trade-offs, but I would love to do it uh, every year because I love Hawaii. So that's my answer. And then in terms of uh, top of my bucket list, I, um, I have a big-ish birthday coming up. I, no, I have a big birthday coming up in 2020. 30, and, can you imagine? Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, <laughs> woo! It's hard to believe, hitting 30, but it, it, it might happen. Uh, so I, I, am, I have already informed my wife that um, I want to go to Australia or New Zealand for oh. that birthday. Ooh, yep. look at you. All right. Yeah. You've never been to either, I'm, ass- I'm assuming? Been, I've never been, no. Um, I've never been south of the equator. So, uh, yeah, that, those, are my, those are my choices. I originally said Australia, but then I also admitted to say New Zealand would also be just fine. Lord there of the are, Rings, right? As, as, we have, as we have determined on a different one of my podcasts, um, Australia is filled with wild animals that will try to kill you. And New Zealand has essentially no predator is more dangerous than like a pig or a cat. So um, I'm open to New Zealand, <laughs> but either one is fine. Thank you to Stay for ask- asking that question. Uh, if you would like to submit your own question to be answered on a future episode to open the show, just send in a tweet with the hashtag SnellTalk. Um, I would like to remind our listeners that we will be recording an episode in person next week. Yes. I'll get to mm. the at the end of the show so we can talk about some of the potential logistics that will come with that. So what I will ask is if anybody has any questions that pertains specifically to us being in person, send them in for next week's show. Hashtag SnellTalk. Some follow-up. Uh, we were talking on the last episode about USB-C and the iPad and the Apple Pencil. And listener Jono wrote in to make a very good point um, about why in 9to5Max report from Guillaume Rambo, uh, Guillaume mentioned that the uh, existing Apple Pencil may not be compatible with new iPads because the Apple Pencil currently pairs over Lightning. And these new iPads may be USB-C, so how would you pair them? It's a very good point. Exactly. Yeah, I think I think I hadn't really thought about that. It's a very good point. It 
wouldn't shock me given that it's Bluetooth, basically. It wouldn't shock me if you could still use them even in this situation, but it might require a ridiculous trip through yeah. the dark back streets of Dongletown. Yeah. In order to adapt USB-C to lightning and then have the little uh, gender adapter and then plug into that and then it would pair. Then you, but then you're going to have charging issues too, right? Because it's just not going to be as easy to charge. Like it, yeah. it would be a pain in the butt. Yeah, so it might be compatible, but it's probably not going to be advisable even if it is compatible. Further follow-up about the iPad Pro, uh, there was an update to said report from Guillermo Rambo saying... <laughs> just tossed it in there. That the uh, the processor would be an A12X processor, not an A1210 processor, an A12X processor. No, and this is this is nice because so often the iPads are the previous generation chip technology with some stepped up things that add the X, or sometimes current, right? Like it's never like a, a it's very rarely a new new thing, but this would be yeah. a brand new chip, a chip that actually yeah. may never get anywhere else other than this iPad. You know, mm-hmm. it may be the A. 13 for the next iPhone we don't know yeah exactly um, right so the a12x the idea there is that it would it's going to be based on the existing chip that's in the this year's iPhones but with the you know extensions that they do to you know wh- which can take various things better graphics whatever it is it's a, an upgrade a little bit of an iPad spin on the existing processors that are in the iPhone yep. 10s and 10r and that's exciting because those are incredibly powerful <laughs> So as uh, Guillermo says in his report, it is a GPU apparently, which would be beefed up sp- specifically. Right. And its code name is Vortex, which I enjoy <sighs> as a code sure. name. Sure. Sure. And it's, uh, yeah, because there's many more pixels on one of these giant iPad Pro screens than on mm-hmm. even on the uh, iPhone XS Max. Yep. And um, I mean, that, so so this got me thinking. Um, we've we've seen these reports about the A12 and how uh, Apple has built into the A12. The There is a... Um, like JavaScript benchmarks are off the charts with the A12 because the A12 is basically includes uh, instruction sets. They talked about this on uh, ATP the last two weeks. Instruction sets that uh, calculate things like like JavaScript does. It's basically like you don't have to do extra work to do JavaScript stuff. It will handle it natively. And that means that the JavaScript benchmarks are off the charts to the point where like JavaScript benchmarks on an iPhone 10s are faster than on an iMac Pro. And that's ridiculous, but it's because of that optimization. And I was thinking, oh well, ten a twelve x on the uh, on the new iPad Pros. That means that they're also going to have that high level JavaScript. And it just it got me thinking about one of my huge frustrations with the iPad Pro, which is it's mobile Safari. Mobile Safari is not as fully featured as desktop Safari is, and. Uh, in addition, because of the user agents it reports to websites, a lot of websites hijack a page load and load a mobile version of the site, which can be good, but is often very bad because it's a phone page that's loading on a uh, on an iPad. Mm-hmm. And uh, I heard from a lot of people when I complained about this on Twitter, like I do, uh, who are iPad big iPad Pro users who very much said, yes, this is the, one of their biggest frustrations. Uh, this is a place where Chromebooks really have it over the iPad and where the new uh, tablet from Google has it over the iPad is that it's got a desktop browsing experience and the iPad's 
browsing experience is not. I also heard from a lot of people, and it's the usual, which is uh, Apple can do anything and they're amazing and they never do anything wrong, but this is a hard problem and Apple can never solve it. <laughs> it's like, okay, that is another way it's to take so, it. I it's guess- so easily solvable. I mean, the, the yeah. difference between this and like the uh, the Slate, right, the Google Slate, is the pointing device. I mean, that's that's what you need, yeah. right? Because these devices, I completely agree, they're more than powerful. In fact, sometimes overpowered right like to deal with these but the problem is that touch doesn't work always with every single website so you need a pointing device and honestly it's true the apple pencil can deal with this right (laughs) you know like as well as a trackpad but they already make something that can make this work yeah, and, and, you know, I what I'm not saying, and of course the other thing that happens on Twitter is that people assume you are being an absolutist and like, and then they're like, aha, but this doesn't solve all examples and therefore it is wrong, which is also dumb. Um, you know, Desktop Safari lets you adjust per site uh, video autoplay, <laughs> video autoplay with sound. There's all these things. It's like, it wouldn't be that hard. I mean, again, it's an engineering project, but it's Apple. I think they're capable of it to say this site I want you to load the full desktop version. And this site, I don't. And of course, it is worth mentioning, right? Yes, you can say force desktop, but it doesn't always work. It doesn't always work because in many ways, uh, a lot of times what happens is you're already redirected elsewhere mm-hmm. <laughs> and that you're not on the real page anymore and you can't get back to it. And you um, can't force I, it beforehand. Like, look, yeah. they need, this is something that would make a big difference. It will make a huge difference to the future of the iPad. We have some yeah. stuff later on today, which kind of like, actually comes back to this topic so maybe but we should I leave think, it there for now yeah i think just the the overarching thing here is the, this ipad pro that's rumored to be released in the next month maybe uh is going to have probably the best javascript performance of any device <laughs> that exists and yet when you think about the web browsing experience on the ipad and compare it to other devices the fact that it is a mobile browser and doesn't give you the desktop browser performance like other than issues with pointing devices uh you could do a great desktop class web browsing experience on the ipad pro and we should be able to do that so you know we'll see we'll see if they get there now we'll see if they get there in ios 13 uh we'll we'll see when we get there all right so as i mentioned we will come back to some of this a little later on but for now Mm -hmm. jason we must do some upstream news because cnbc had a report uh, in in quotation, I think about Apple's yeah, upcoming yeah. streaming service. I want to read a quote uh, from this from this article. The product will include Apple owned content, which will be free to Apple device owners, and subscription channels, which will allow customers to sign up for online only services such as those from HBO and Stars. So we'll take this. There's two points here we want to address. The first is the second point. Uh, so taking the model basically that Amazon has with Prime Video channels. Full disclosure, they have been a sponsor of some Relay FM shows, but that doesn't really make a difference to this point, but just wanted to mention it because I said the exact name of the product. That got reported as news, um, and it's not really, because even the story says Bloomberg already reported that part in May. So one of the things is this is a very long story, and it's very hard to find what actually is new reporting here, if anything. And yet the story got picked up up heavily. So here is the... Here is the part that seems to be new. So the channels, the idea there is Apple's going to, um, which goes directly against kind of the app model that they launched the Apple TV with, is that Apple now is going to try and get you to buy uh, premium streaming services, essentially sign up within the TV app, and they appear in the TV app, which is sort of like, I mean, you can still buy things already with um, 
I'm not sure how different that is than what they do now because you can buy things with uh, Apple's payment system through their through the third party apps, but maybe the apps Some won't be necessary because it'll be TV in the TV app. app. Uh, who knows? Right. Who so knows? you won't need to download the HBO Now app because you just watch those shows within the TV app. That's how the Prime channels work. So maybe that's very confusing, but it's also old news. So really, the news seems to be this suggestion that Apple is going to make some of its own video content available for free for people who are using Apple's devices and running that TV app as a way, I guess, to get people comfortable in the TV app and also to get those other things, other uh, channels in front of them. Now, the amount of money Apple's spending on original content will never, ever, 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 ever be made back by taking a percentage of the sales of other people's streaming video services. That is not a, you know, the, the, Apple is not investing in this content in order to sell you HBO Now and take a percentage of the subscription sale. That's not why it's doing it. Um, probably what's going to go on here is either Apple wants to get people into the TV app and sees the, what the CNBC story says is a Netflix-like subscription service, quote, down the road. Um, and I think that's basically the report here is that uh, they're saying Apple will launch this content for free in the tv app along with the channel stuff and then they will launch the full service a little bit later and the only question there is is it really going to be free shows to start or is it going to be more like apple music where you get these shows for free but you got to sign up uh, and after three months, we start charging you, or after six months, we start charging you. I feel like you. the idea of them doing a trial is just an inevitability, right? Like, I feel like right. anyone could could write that in an article without ever knowing it, because it, right. it makes perfect sense, and they already did it with Apple Music, and that wasn't even their own stuff. And we've talked about the split um, season model, too, where mm-hmm. if, they, if they order 13 episodes of a show, uh, maybe these shows debut with six or four or three and maybe they roll out in a in a drop, or maybe mm-hmm. some of them roll out weekly. Uh, but the idea there is, uh, you want what you want is to get people to sample this stuff and then decide that they're in and they want to pay. And that's probably like what all this report really says is they're going to give some stuff away. And I, I sure right, like we would all agree, of course they are because there's going to be a free trial at some point, almost certainly. So maybe that's what this is, or maybe not. Maybe you know, maybe this report is saying that they're just going to drop a couple of shows just for free right in the TV app because what they want as the first step in moving people into the TV app, where obviously this other service is going to live in that TV app, um, that is uh, that's worth it to them to burn a couple of shows just to get people comfortable in the TV app. Keeping in mind, they're not giving it away to everybody. They're giving it away to everybody who has an Apple TV or an iPad or an iPhone to watch on those devices. But still, of course, because that's what they're going to do. Anyway, it's a weird report. There's a, there's a lot of words for apparently not a lot that's new. And the stuff that's new is kind of unclear. <laughs> so, you know, but but it's, uh, it's worth at least pondering the idea that Apple somehow is going to... Um, you know that it's master strategy. I think that I think it's worth saying that this story is saying what we've kind of intuited, which is its master strategy is get people in the TV app, put their service in the TV app, and then this previous Bloomberg report saying they're also going to focus on reselling other people streaming in the TV app and making the TV app. Uh, so the future of TV was apps, but now the future of TV is the TV app, and that's not surprising. They've been headed that way for a year. <laughs> 
future of TV apps is apps and apps is the future. And the of apps TV. are named if the app is named TV. The future uh, of TV apps TV is the is TV the app. Future of the TV yeah. app. Mm-hmm. We have a new challenger approaching. Of course, there is another media conglomerate which is working on their own streaming service, Warner Media, who we have been talking about a little bit over the last couple of weeks. Um, there's a report from the Hollywood Reporter that the Warner Media is preparing to launch a streaming service of their own. Um, in case you need a refresher, so some of the uh, services and/or content that could be included in this: HBO, TBS, Cartoon Network, pro- uh, properties from the DC Universe, mm-hmm. Hanna Barbera cartoons, Sesame Street because HBO have the rights for Sesame Street, and even Warner Brothers movies, which includes stuff like the Harry Potter franchise. I was thinking about this one, Jason, because at first I was kind of like, "All right," but then I started thinking about some of the properties that Warner actually own. And it's like, I think we maybe sometimes don't give them the same credit we could give Disney, right? Right. Even just Harry Potter. So me and Adina are currently watching the Harry Potter movies because she's never seen them. She's never read the books, never Ah. seen the movies. So we're watching them all. And as I'm watching them, as somebody who read the books and watched the movies, loved the movies, but I was like, God, this would be a really good TV show instead. I know, right? Where they could actually tell the stories. Because we watched Goblet of Fire and she's like, why don't we get to see what everybody else is doing? I'm like, oh, because you did in the book, but there just is not enough time in right. the movies to tell the whole stories. God, it would be a really good, like, seven-series TV show. Right. High budget on HBO. Oh, boy. That would be good. So- or... Or on the Warner Media, Warner Media so streaming in, service. It, yep. it, it, what's mm-hmm. interesting here is that basically they're feeling like HBO Now is successful and they don't want to upset that. So they'll, they'll, they're going to keep that going, but they yep. want to build this this broader streaming service that encompasses all their content. I look at that and think, okay, I guess it kind of makes sense. But in the long run, I, I'm not sure HBO Now makes sense on its own. That you 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 At some point, you probably just want everybody to have... They're trying to not burn all their bridges, which is probably yeah. a good, good move, yeah. right? In the long run, one streaming service... I get they also want to increase the content at HBO, but at some point, like if this is if this is not if this is a superset, it's everything that HBO does and is going to do plus other stuff. Then it, then at that point, it doesn't make sense. Now maybe HBO and this service are different in some way, and that is that would be different. I don't know, um, but I, I'm fascinated by this because you're right. They they also they have their DC thing that they did that they launched, which is the DC Universe streaming service, which just launched, and that's got original shows on it as well as uh, and and catalog stuff. So um, it is a little like like Disney, right, where they've got they're going to do a uh, they're not doing a Marvel streaming service, but they've got multiple streaming services in different areas, and I could totally see. Um, Warner doing something similar with uh, with some of this other stuff, and Harry Potter is a good piece of intellectual property. There are others. There's a, Warner Brothers has a lot of uh, intellectual property in their vault that they could uh, they could put together, not yep. just for old stuff, but for for new stuff, and as as well as completely original stuff, but like franchise stuff that they could pull out and put on here, including some other DC stuff uh, that's not in the DC streaming service or that's on both. That might be interesting to do. Harry Potter is a great example of that too so there's there's lots we'll see um we'll see what they're doing but everybody's you know every single one of these giants is going to have a multi-tiered streaming strategy and that's what the future is going to be is you're going to have your compact comcast streaming and you're going to have your warner streaming and you're going to have your disney streaming and that's just uh and sony apparently also will exist or will be bought by somebody but yeah 
It's just like, you know, I was watching the movies, right? And the first one came out in 2001. So it's like it's fast right? approaching 20 years. I'll tell you, man, the special effects in the, in the Philosopher's Stone do not hold, they do not no. hold up. The rest of them, like from the second one, it does its job, right? But like in the first one, you can see all these places where they're trying to like hide special effects, right? Like they're trying to like, you know, you don't see McGonagall turn into a cat. You just see a shadow, right? It's like, we can't do that yet. But like they get that later on. But like just in general, the uh, special effects do not hold up in that first movie. But it was like, I looked at it, I was like, oh, because it's only 20 years old. It's kind of, and I guess, you know, I reckon those budgets improved a lot from the second one onwards, but it's been great fun to watch it again, but it does make me think at the same time at 20 years, like, I'm surprised they haven't tried to reboot it yet. And I know that there's a lot of other Harry Potter stuff going on, which is probably sure. why, right? Like, there's like a whole prequel series of stuff. Yeah, film, film you know, series, yeah. In uh, Fantastic Beasts, but... And, se- and the sequel... Uh theater stuff the too, theater. Right? Like, there's so still a lot going on all over the place yeah but i would love to see tv show i did see a thing recently that they're making like that somebody some some studio is making like a triple a open world game set in the harry potter universe which seems interesting so when you get to the end of all the movies then the next mm-hmm. thing you guys need to do is go see uh the harry potter and the cursed child i think we will yeah. Adina seems to be enjoying it a lot more than i expected she would so, that's good that's good and you'll like about. it because because the plot of that movie is very back to the future which is your favorite so mm-hmm. yeah all right today's show is brought to you in part by our friends over at green chef green chef is a meal delivery service that includes everything that you need to cook delicious gourmet meals that you can feel good about because green chef sends a wide variety of organic ingredients and imaginative new recipes to you every single week now what I think is kind of awesome about Green Chef, what sets them apart is the way that they split up some of the meal plans because they have meal plans for different dietary types. So with Green Chef, you can you can choose meal plans that are, could be paleo or vegan or vegetarian, keto, gluten-free, omnivore, carnivore, and they are the first USDA certified organic meal delivery service. Every ingredient is thoughtfully sourced and its journey is tracked from planting to plating. Their recipes include pre-made sauces, dressings, and spices as well, so you get more flavor in less time. Everything is hand-picked. They deliver it right to your door. And with Green Chef, it's easy to maintain a specialty diet and enjoy exciting new options. Like You don't have to just eat boring stuff or break your diet. Like You can do both of these things together, which is kind of cool, I think. Jason, I know that you've received some Green Chef food in the past, and I kind of wanted to hear your experience on that, because I know that you went outside of your usual dietary requirements for this. Yeah, well, so uh, Green Chef has all these great different options, but we have some options. We have some issues in our house that are a little bit different than the, than the features that they offer, so we ended up just getting the vegetarian version. And I am a vegetarian... Uh, skeptic. Skeptic. Yeah, I just I don't believe they exist. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> I I don't love uh, uh, vegetables. I, I'm just not that person. And uh, so I was like, well, okay, you know, we need to try Green Chef. We'll try the vegetarian because I'm not going to get a uh, you know a meat box with pork in it because my uh, family doesn't eat pork, even though I do, but they don't. Um, it was so good. Like th- this, is the thing is the, their vegetarian meals. They were so good. I I was dre- got to be honest here. Dreading it, dreading these two meals that were going to come in a box for four people that were vegetarian. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to take it. Take one for the podcast sponsorship team, and it was actually really great. And and I, they were both really tasty. They weren't boring. They weren't. Uh, I don't know what I was expecting. I guess I have misjudged the tastiness of vegetarian meals and clever chefs 
who put uh, clever ingredients together in order to make things that were tasty. Uh, but they were all they were all really good, and I would have it again. And if I was to become a vegetarian, I would absolutely get on the vegetarian plan train because that they having some help in coming up with good vegetarian entrees would be uh, uh, that would be a big plus for me. So yeah, I was very happy, surprised just how good they were. That's really cool. So if you want to go and find out more about this uh, yourself, you, you definitely, definitely should. And you can go to greenchef.us slash upgrade. And when you do, you will get $50 off your first box of Green Chef. So once again, for $50 off your first box of Green Chef, go to greenchef, so G-R-E-E-N-C-H-E-F dot U-S slash upgrade. Our thanks to Green Chef for their support of this show and Relay FM. All right, so this week, this past week, uh, if you follow lots of the people that we talk about on, on this show on Twitter, people like uh, David Smith and Steve Trouton Smith, not related, I don't think, but both both, both Smiths, uh, or Marco Arment, then you may have seen custom watch faces as a <laughs> uh, on the Apple Watch as a as a thing. It's so, a thing that people are doing, which is funny because, yep. of course, you can't do it. You can no. write an app that... Yeah, poses let, let as a watch see. face. Let me explain this a little bit. So, Steve Trouton Smith uh, created a thing which is on GitHub. So, it's something you can go get started with on your own of building your own custom watch faces using Sprite Kit. Now, these aren't, as Jason said, these aren't actual watch faces you can choose as watch faces. They're apps that you can make, little apps that you can make that, that operate like watch faces. And if you use the setting on the Apple Watch, which is to, uh, when you look at the watch for it, to show you the last used app, which is a, a setting that you can choose. You have to show me the last used app or my watch face. Um, you can, by doing this, kind of fake a custom watch face, um, which has led to many, many people playing around with what Steve has been doing um, and digging in and kind of customizing their own thing with Sprite Kit. Um, and it's spread quite widely. Um, I will include also in the show notes a link to uh, a blog post that David Smith has done. So underscore, he made a, a, bu- a, mu- a bunch of really useful functional faces, but also some faces that look like my watch brand nomos which is kind of funny like he used those as a as an inspiration and of course if you look at some of what steve trout smith has been doing there's it, it clearly started from the hermes face and moved on from there right the hermes face which debuted with the series four is uh the, this two colors cut in half and it moves the color kind of split moves with the minute hand so it moves around the face and then he kind of went on from there mm-hmm. so you kind of would ask yourself, why are people doing this? You know, and I think that Jason, you wrote a really good article that I have no doubt in my mind that that started some of this, um, because it, it, I think it started a wave of conversation over the last couple of weeks about Apple Watch faces in general, because we see new ones every single year, but yep. there's no consistency. The new watch faces have new complication types. They can't use old ones. Old watch faces aren't, aren't updated to get the new ones. It kind of feels like every year we get new watch faces that have some difference, and then the old ones get forgotten about. Yeah, this is... Yeah, I wrote a, about it briefly in my Apple Watch review, and then Marco wrote a post about faces, that, and then I wrote a, a, a lot longer post just about faces, too. So mm-hmm. it was kind of in the water there. But I think this moment where we've got the larger screen on the Apple Watches this this generation and the moves that apple made in terms of the faces really brought to the forefront um that apple doesn't care very much about watch faces if, if that makes sense like 
Uh, and, and I know that the reaction to that can be, well, what do you mean? They built this new thing and they have these awesome new watch faces with these new complications. It's like, yeah, they do. But if you peel it back a layer, what you'll find is Apple, every time they come up with a new watch, they like will throw a couple of faces on there. But they don't go back, really, and rethink the old faces. And this time, it's all exacerbated. So they made the two infograph faces. In order to make more rich complications, they created some new complication styles for the new infograph faces. I think there are three or four new complication styles for the new faces uh, that only work on those faces. Fair enough, right? But the weird thing is everything else. Like... All the other faces didn't get updated, except for like little minor updates, and some of which are annoying, like making the straight line complications on other faces into slight curves, but it's still literally the same complication. It's the old style complication. Um, so that's that's annoying, and they keep doing that, where obviously it's not a priority to them to make their old watch faces better, just to throw more new ones on. And that's that's... I mean, what Marco said, I think on Twitter or maybe in his blog post is it feels to him like there's like one person working on faces at Apple. Mm -hmm. And so they do what they can and then that's it. But but then you get into some of the details that are just so bad. And the best one, the best example is Apple introduced a new circular complication on the new watch faces. They have an existing circular complication. They made no attempt to put any compatibility in. So if you use the infograph faces and you lose all of these complications from older apps that haven't been updated to use the new complication type, including a bunch of complications from Apple that just aren't there. They're Apple originated. Like if you want to launch messages or something, it's just nope, it's not there anymore. You have to use a different face for that. So they've created this own um, kind of like discontinuity of, of watch face complications in the, in the thing that they completely control themselves. And and it is just one of those moments where a whole bunch of us who use the Apple Watch look at this and say, why is it that for all of the effort Apple puts into so many aspects of the Apple Watch, it has it, it appears to be doing almost the minimum on watch face design. Like literally, and because the minimum is we have a new big screen, we need to create new faces to take advantage of them that we can show off. So they did that, and then literally nothing else, including adding compatibility for older complications. Um, or allowing those new complications to live on the older faces, which is the other part of this. The uh, My favorite Apple Watch face is Utility, and I took screenshots of Utility and the Infograph face, and the actual watch face itself is exactly the same size, the circle is exactly the same size, which means those complications in the corners have exactly the same amount of room uh, on on both faces but one face can only use the old ones and one face can only use the new ones and i get that there might be some design issues there but it seems kind of ridiculous like why can't i why can't i use my favorite face with the new complications if there's room for them there and i i think the real answer is they didn't bother probably because whoever's working on this had to prioritize and updating old faces uh wasn't uh wasn't gonna gonna make the cut and i guess that's that's ultimately what a lot of us are saying and 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 uh, you see the frustration when you see developers like steve trout and smith building these uh watch face apps i i think the message here is one third parties can build watch face apps and that's interesting 
But two, it's there's a hunger for better watch faces on the Apple Watch. And for me, it comes down to this idea that if Apple, and this is what I said in my piece, if Apple, I get that Apple might want to keep complete control or mostly control of the watch faces. I get that. I get that we may never see a true third-party access to custom watch faces. Maybe we will. Um, it doesn't, again, people on Twitter will make that absolutist argument. They'll say, well, you know, they can't let anybody because there'll be intellectual property issues and lawsuits and things like, well, you know, if you read a CarPlay app, you have to get approval from a special part of Apple App Store group in order to be allowed to have a CarPlay app. Right. You can curate a developer and say, we trust you. But but even if they don't, like, this is the thing is, okay, Apple, you want to completely control the watch face experience? fine i mean i don't love it but but i get it um but if you're gonna have the monopoly on it you got to do a better job like that's the bottom line is you got to do a better job you've got to update your old faces you got to provide more variety you've got to make the complications better and more compatible and and i get the argument i think overarching argument that there have been so many other problems on watch os for the last few years that they've been trying to deal with that the watch faces was not a priority but I look at watchOS 5 today and think it's, it's come a long way and it feels to be at a level where the faces and the lack of uh, compatibility and, and the fact that they've kind of been doing minimal effort on faces all this time is starting to show. And, and so from my perspective, I feel like all of us are essentially through all these different actions are saying, hey, Apple, watch faces matter. You don't pay as much attention to them as you should. By the time we get to watch OS 6, can we either let third-party developers build watch faces or can you do a better job internally of providing access to, you know, complications across all the faces and making sure all the faces are up to date? Because there's a discontinuity here. And, you know, I think the face is the main interface of the Apple Watch. Like, not the, it's, it's, it's the equivalent of the Finder or the app launch screen on, on an iPhone. Uh, the, I think faces and complications are how people use the Apple Watch. And so to, to just kind of stick in a couple new ones and not worry about the old ones and build new complication styles and not worry about the existing ones and not even bother to update your own complications for the new style. It's just, it's not good. It's, it's really bad. And so that's, that's what's going on here. It's fun to watch Steve Trouton Smith's thing because he's, he basically built this face that can do like, I don't know, thousands of different, you could hit a random button and like thousands of different options across it. And uh, it's just, it's fun. And these are developers playing, but they're also making a point that um, it's not impossible to build nice watch faces and uh, somebody, you know, somebody ought to do it either inside or outside Apple. I want to talk about the copyright issues thing because I think that's brought up quite a lot. And also it's like, I can see why people will bring it up because a lot of the watch faces that are being created by people right now would infringe on the copyright of other watchmakers, right? And and I think it's because right now, as people are kind of just getting their head around it, that they're, they're making replicas of things or they're using property that they already understand because they're first tinkering, right? Like this is kind of how you learn is by like, okay, can I make this? It's like, okay, I made this and it looks like this so I know how it works. Now I can start working on my own ideas. And um, underscore David Smith's a really good example of that, right? Like he shows in his blog post, like first I created some stuff that looked like watches that I knew. And then when I understood that, I made some stuff that was useful in my own way and that are my own designs right because i think that's kind of how people start so i can see how 
the argument of copyright gets brought up when everybody's kind of sharing things that look like different Rolexes or whatever. But ultimately, this is a problem that Apple can solve or have already solved. Like, look at the uh, iMessage sticker store. Like, this was the thing that they spoke about, right? The, mm-hmm. the the potential... Apple spoke about this, the potential for copyright infringement issues, and that they said that they would take care of it. And it seems, by and large, that they mostly have. I mean, you can search for a lot of copyright characters, and you typically only find stuff that is legit. Like, if you search yeah. for Disney characters, you find Disney stuff that Disney makes. You don't find other people. Like, like so, you know, the very popular character Pusheen, right? Mm-hmm. They make a sticker pack for Pusheen. There aren't like a bunch of like other people trying to make these like fake Pusheen sticker packs because you would find them, right? Because it's a character that people like, but you right. don't see it, right? You don't see Mickey Mouse stickers. It's literally a curated app store. Like yeah. this is why we have a curated app store. This is why you have to get approval from Apple. Is is now we could argue in the app store space, especially on the 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 largest collection that they've got the highest volume they have issues there with approving some stuff that should not get approved but on these smaller ones it it seems to not be that much of a problem but even in the app store there is a process right that if you as the copyright holder have a problem you can lodge a complaint get them kicked out and it can be taken care of so there is a method for this like the copyright complaint i think is an easy one to levy but when you play it out it's manageable like it is totally manageable, and so so I'm not gonna yeah accept that argument that well you can't do this because they'll all be knockoffs of existing faces. First off, there is the irony here that Apple itself was got in trouble for knocking off an existing watch face, um, but the uh, Mondale Swiss clock, right? Yeah, the Swiss yeah. clock, right? But uh, you know, you put if they wanted to do third party watch faces, they could say. Uh, it's you know very much in the terms already, but they could even even point a finger at it that like anything that's that's intellectual property of an existing watchmaker is not allowed, and there'll be a process to do that, and they'll they'll uh, train up a team on what the existing watch face trademarks are or whatever, and they'll and they'll be super uh, specific about it, or they'll train up a team who's looking at specific watch faces and figuring out. Uh, what's there or not. Or they'll do the other thing, which is uh, say you can apply to be a watch face developer and agree to all these other things and we're going to watch what you do more uh, closely. And that's going to be how they do it is like, you know, you're an approved watch face developer. There are lots of ways they can do it if they want to do it. And uh, it would be great if they want to do it that way because maybe Apple could focus on making complications compatible across all of these different things and not worry about building a million different faces. But again, I'm okay if they want to just keep it all to themselves as long as they make all of the watch faces they offer good and compatible and make the complication system as robust as they can so that you can use complications in different places and maybe in different contexts, which is another thing that they're lacking where you, you know, I want my timer to appear when a timer is running, but otherwise I don't want it to appear at all. Stuff like that that's also not not capable right now. So ultimately, do you think that Apple will ever allow this custom watch faces? Do you think that it is a thing that they will do? If I had to put money on it, I would say uh, I would say no. I I would ever ever is a long time. I think it is highly 
possible that they will one day do it. Will they do it next year? Hmm. I am skeptical. It's well, possible. That, within the next five years. Let's let's kind of put a cap on it, just to make it a little bit easier to discuss. Uh, yeah, let's say yes. Yeah, let's say yeah. yes. I, I think that in years. the long in the long range, I think they will do it because it just is going to make the, the watch more delightful to have a lot of different face options on it, and it re- and it reduces their burden. You know, because in the end, if you think about it, Apple would be, especially if they don't have a huge team working on faces, which they totally don't, it, Apple would be better off focusing on foundational face technology right like the apis for complications and a possibility of contextual complications and stuff like that and building some design guidelines and having a base set of faces but then letting people uh write their own you know pretty face designs or whatever and and uh and focus on the complications but i could see them saying you know what there aren't that many um like honestly steve trout and smith what he showed is if you build a clever watch face with a whole bunch of different uh, options, you can end up creating something with thousands of variations that let you customize it to your personality. And if that's true, then you could also, if you're Apple, just build a bunch of those kind of, uh, of faces in different styles and feel like you've given enough personalization options to people. So, you know, I, I think... It might be a good move for Apple to open it up, but I can see why they wouldn't want to. And again, I'd be okay with that if they do all the other things. But the problem is they haven't opened it up and they aren't doing the other things. And honestly, even if third-party watch faces were allowed today, it would still be a mess because there are the different complication types and compatibility is limited, um, you know, you and you don't get access to the old complications on the new faces. And it's, it's kind of a mess as it is, which may be why it isn't a third party opportunity right now because it's kind of a mess and maybe what they need to do and maybe even what they've been doing in the background is building a new system for faces that is way better that would be a great watch os 6 feature and maybe as a part of that you would have either more much more dynamic complications or third party watch faces we'll have to see but um i i like the fact that it's not just me it's some other people too who are all kind of grumbling about how faces should be better on the apple watch that's the bottom line is the apple watch faces are interesting but it's kind of a mess beneath the surface and they should be better and it matters it's an important part of what that uh what that device does and um clearly it's not getting enough attention inside Apple. And I think all of us who are complaining are hoping that by causing a little bit of a dust up, maybe somebody inside Apple goes, see, I told you we aren't doing enough with faces. <laughs> maybe we'll see that sometimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Today's show is also brought to you by our friends over at Pingdom. Pingdom are super awesome because they help keep sites online. They help keep some of your favorite sites online, some of your favorite companies, including RelayFM, because Pingdom provide real-time feedback for monitoring. So you don't have to be refreshing your page all day or keeping your eye on logs all day. You don't. So you get to know what's going on because Pingdom are monitoring your website for you. Stuff breaks on the line all the time. Pingdom detect more than 400,000 outages every single day. It doesn't matter what type of size company you are, what type of website you have. There can be issues across any site at any size at any scale. 
and you want alerts about critical website issues. With Pingdom, you can customize exactly how you're alerted depending on the severity of an outage, and they will also track and analyze your website load times so you can see what's affecting user experiences and if you fix something to make sure that it's been fixed in the long term because they send you these great reports. If you have a site of any size, you need Pingdom. They have a no-fuss approach to get started. You just give them the URL that you want to monitor and they'll take care of the rest. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now and you can get yourself a 14-day free trial with no credit card required. Then when you sign up, use the code UPGRADE at checkout to get a huge 30% off your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom for their continued support of this show and Relay FM. So today, um, Adobe uh, had a presentation on their Adobe Max uh, conference, I guess, convention. Mm. I think it's a little bit of both. It seems like a pretty big deal. It happens in San Jose. Um, and it confirms the Bloomberg report that we had earlier this year about Photoshop coming to the iPad. Um, I, I like they have a, a line on their website. It's, it says, not Photoshop for the iPad, Photoshop on the iPad. Mm-hmm. And that is like a really good way of explaining what they're doing. They haven't made an iOS version of Photoshop. They are taking the new version of Photoshop and making it work the same everywhere. This is the right. full desktop app. It has all of the toolbars, all the controls, and layer management, unlimited layers, and all that kind of stuff. It is a new user interface. But Adobe is saying that they are observing a lot of the placement and actions from existing versions of Photoshop to ensure mm-hmm. muscle memory is maintained. But like with uh, Final Cut Pro 10, which is kind of what uh, Adobe are kind of going through here, their, their final cutification of Photoshop, not every feature is going to make it to this 1.0. To, and it's the 1.0 across all devices. So they're initially going to be shipping a slimmed down version with planning to add more functionality over time. So they think that this 1.0 will have the majority of stuff that people need, but there's going to be some super powerful features or some edge case features which exist in the current Photoshop that won't make it to the 1.0, but will be added in as time goes on, which I think is a perfectly fine way of working, right? And I think that by and large... Final Cut Pro 10 has bore that out, right? Like, I, I, I assume there are still some people using 7, but I think over time, people got happier and happier with how that went. Um, this version of Photoshop syncs with the desktop version. So they're using cloud PSD files as a thing they've created. So you can work on the same file seamlessly. So the file lives in the cloud. It lives in your creative cloud. So you can work on the desktop, then on the iPad. Um, what do you think about this to start with? Uh, well, I'm so happy, as we said before, I'm happy. And I'm a Photoshop user. I'm a Creative Cloud, Photoshop, and Lightroom subscriber. Mm-hmm. And so I'll get this when it comes out. I'll just add this to the list. And, uh, you know, as we've been talking about, and Federico and Fraser Spears and so many people have talked about, um, the iPad hardware is capable of this, right? Like, it's not a question. The iPad hardware is capable. The question has been, uh, can you bring it to the touch interface, and uh, but you've got the touch and and Apple Pencil as a as an input, um, so I'm really excited by this, and I'm okay that it might not have every feature. I mean, I'll ask me again if it doesn't have a favorite feature of mine. But given what I use Photoshop for, um, the number one feature is that it's Photoshop, and that I have been using that for app for 25 years now, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> a long, long time. And so I know it. 
And that's why that's really why I use it and pay for it is that I just I know it. I know how to use it. I, I don't want to learn something else at this point when I've got the thing that I want. But on iPad, I don't. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in it. It is a uh, the thing that gives me pause is this conversation that they, they had about uh, cloud PSD files, which. Um, and the Verge has a as a uh, podcast, and they also did a transcript of a Q and A that they had with an Adobe exec that mentions the idea that Photoshop files in the cloud. Um, and they, you know, Neelay's got it covered, right? He's like, well, wait a second, I'm on a plane somewhere, and I can't get the you know in-flight wireless to download a giant Photoshop file. And the guy from Adobe says, no, 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 it's 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 fine. We, you know, we we're we're gonna we're going to sync stuff uh, and put it in the cache and you can pull traditional PSDs in and export out traditional PSDs. It's more like what they're building is a a cross device sync for documents you're working on. And that made me feel a little bit better about it. The idea is Adobe wants that if you're working on, um, if you're working on, if you think about like what Apple's demoed with their iCloud stuff, it's the same idea. It's like you're working on Photoshop on a Mac, and then you open up Photoshop on the iPad. It should, it basically should be able to get the exact same document in the exact same state, without you saving it somewhere, dragging it somewhere else, you know, copying it in, editing it there, and then putting it back. That if you're working in Photoshop on different devices, it's going to use this cloud PSD format to seamlessly sync that. Um, that file and that project across, and th- that's okay. I just, I just don't want it to be what Adobe has done with some stuff in the fa- past, which is sort of like, why don't you just abandon files and go to our weird cloud service that everybody uh, needs to be a, a a member of Creative Cloud to use? And my response to that is always, no, I'm not interested in that. I don't. W- I want to use my Dropbox, right? So it sounds you like can. You can sounds do like, that, yeah, they said. Yeah, yeah. So, sounds like they are they are thinking of the cloud stuff as being, and I'm sure they sell to work groups, you know, if super expensive uh, cloud storage and stuff like that. But for this purpose, it seems like it's more about creating that kind of seamless across device experience as you hop from place to place. So all of the, a lot of the uh, product imagery and the demos and stuff that they're showing are including the Apple Pencil. It seems to be a very important part of this purely because I think that a lot of the controls are pretty small. And also, you know, I think a lot of creative people, they use Wacom tablets and stuff like that. They're used to having a stylus. And on the Vergecast, which uh, Jason mentioned, which was a, an interview with Scott Belsky, who's Adobe's chief product officer. Yes. I want to read you a little transcript. The Adobe guy. The Adobe guy. You know, yep. Just some rando. He's I want to read you a little, a little part of this. Adobe which, uh, employee number 862. I feel like yeah. some phone calls may be made from Apple to Adobe today. Uh, so this is a transcript. We're really excited. <laughs> I would almost bet that <laughs> Adobe and Apple are already working on what their presentation is going to be for the yeah. iPad Pro event whenever it occurs, right? But like, uh, what I mean is the phone call is because of this. We're really excited about the pencil. I think you'll see the capabilities of this accessory grow over time. We do collaborate with Apple a lot on this. All I can say is it's an important part of the product for the iPad. I think it will grow in importance. So I've, <laughs> mm. I've picked and chose a little bit from that because Neilai jumps on him because he's so friggin' excited that it goes down this route. So that's like two sentences smushed together. Um, but what I think that very clearly tells you is exactly that, that Apple and Adobe have probably already been working on their presentation. Yeah. And I believe, like, I think this is very clear, that like Adobe have definitely seen some stuff that's coming over the next few years. Mm-hmm. I think this, I, I mean, we spoke about this when the report came out. 
this is very much these two companies needing to work together to make this work. Yeah. Like they, if, if Adobe are going to make this bet, they need to know Apple are in this for the long haul. Yes. And Apple need Adobe, right? Like they need each other for this to really make this something that goes on to be a good thing. And the Apple Pencil becoming a more important part of the toolkit will 100% make this Photoshop move a good one because what it's showing is pointing devices, right? And like th- that these are a thing that should exist on the iPad. And maybe the primary one is the Apple Pencil, but it doesn't matter how sure. it is because that's what you need for these desktop class apps because the UIs are built differently. So... I think that this whole thing, including the Apple Pencil thing and this whole thing of Photoshop, is really significant. Like, this is a big thing for the iPad. Like, yep. So here's my thinking on it, right? Maybe this pushes more people, more companies to make this decision. Or maybe this is just something that Adobe can do because Adobe has a business model that supports this. But either way, this is positive because even if nothing else happens except for the fact that we now have Photoshop on the iPad, that's a big win for the iPad. Like, just that on its own. That's huge. But it could also mean that more companies, like like Microsoft did as well, right? We can't discount Word. Word on the iPad is really good. But, like, just showing that if you have a business model that supports it or if you can create one that will, the iPad is a place for you. I wrote a thing about this a while ago when I was complaining about, uh, on the internet like I do apparently, about Photoshop not being real on the iPad. That, um... There's an artist named Jen Bartel, and she was detailing her workflow and talking about how um, she's gotten better on iPad, but she, you know, until real full Photoshop is there, she can't, she can't use the iPad, even though she really likes the iPad and the Apple Pencil. And so she's got a uh, mobile studio, like a Wacom mobile studio that's basically running Windows that she can use. And that's an example of somebody who is an existing Adobe customer and wants to use the iPad and can't. And I think there are a lot of them. I think there are a lot of them out there who um, appreciate or would consider the iPad Pro and the Apple Pencil, current or future, if they had this other piece, which is they need Photoshop. And you can say, well, oh, but they can use this other piece of software that runs on the iPad. And some people can, but a lot of people can't. In her case, it has to do with their Adobe-specific brushes she uses. Like, she wants Photoshop on the iPad. And... Uh, she's going to get it, which is very exciting, right? And I think there are going to be a lot of people like that who um, love the hardware, but they are also part of, their whole workflow is based on Adobe products and especially Photoshop. So it's exciting. This wasn't all. Like Adobe had a bunch of other stuff today, which is also like encouraging. Uh, They have a video app aimed at YouTubers called Premiere Rush. Um, And it is a version of Premiere, which is specific, which is like shrimps, like slimmed down and streamlined. It's on all devices, yeah. and phones and tablets and, and PCs and stuff like that. Um, but it is created with YouTubers in mind. Mm-hmm. It's effectively iMovie. Right, right. And this is, this is, I wonder what we'll see from Apple on this front because. If anything. Because, well, at some point, I think they've got to do something. Then they can update iMovie and that's fine. But I keep thinking to myself, is anybody at Apple thinking that Logic and Final Cut need to be on the iPad Pro? Because mm-hmm. they, in some form. Um, now, GarageBand is a light version of Logic. And iMovie is a light version of Final Cut Pro. But I do have to ask, like, is that enough? Is that enough on the iPad Pro to have these kind of light versions that haven't really 
improved a lot on the iPad in a while. Um, it is cool to see Adobe trying to rush in here and say, we've got a you know YouTuber video editing app that yep. is now available on uh, iPhone and iPad. That's that's great. But I do I do wonder like what is Apple's strategy there? Because we've talked about like Ferrite, which is what I use on on the iPad to edit podcasts. And uh, you know there is no logic for iPad. Will there be? And what about Final Cut? That's a good example. Again, the hardware can do it. What about Xcode? Sure, sure. That's that's a a big question too. So what's Apple's intention for this platform too in the long term? Um, also, uh, they're working on a drawing and painting app, which is codenamed Project Gemini, which is them clearly, pro- well, I would assume, gunning for for Procreate. Yeah, kudos to Adobe, right? Like, it took them a while. I think they made a bad bet, which is that they, they basically made a bet on, we're going to do fun bite-sized apps for the iPhone. And then the world went in a little bit of a different direction and they've had to realign and this is part became part of a larger kind of re-envisioning of what their uh what what their apps are as sort of across devices and uh but it's it's so it's been a long wait but it's good to see it all right we should do some ask upgrade Mm. today's show uh, is also brought to you by our friends over at squarespace you can make your next move with squarespace because they will let you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain name, award-winning templates, 24-7 customer support, and so much more. They are the perfect home for your next project. It doesn't matter what type of website you want to make. Squarespace have got the tools to let you do it. They're an all-in-one platform. There is nothing to install or patch or upgrade. It is quite simply the easiest way to take your project from an idea to having a place and a home online. Their templates are really great. Very customizable. They have some that are, that are built around specific ideas, like maybe portfolios or businesses or weddings or events. But they're all really customizable. They come with um, a, like the templates actually come with some content pre-filled in, which really helps you to understand like what do I need to put on a wedding website. We found this very useful when we built our wedding website on Squarespace because they they gave us a page structure that we could uh, take and could adapt to our own needs. So it's really awesome. If you want to sell stuff, they have online store functions on Squarespace like they they really do have everything if you want to try it out for yourself as a really easy way to do that if you just go to squarespace.com slash upgrade you can sign up for a trial it's no credit card required you can build your entire website and then when you're ready to launch it to the world you just need to sign up for a plan their plans start at just $12 a month but you can get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain by using the offer code upgrade at checkout once again that's squarespace.com slash upgrade and the code upgrade to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for this show. Our thanks to Squarespace. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. So we have some hashtag ask upgrade questions. The first comes from Wildfire. With the Mm -hmm. increase in phone size and high DPI screens, I'm feeling less inclined to need or want a Kindle. Do you think this trend will eventually reduce the demand for Kindles or do you think that that demand uh, is inherent for other purposes, Jason? I think the demand is already reduced by the existence of iPads and and iPhones and other phones and tablets. I think that was the big reducer in demand is for some people a backlit screen or an OLED screen is enough. Um, I don't think it's going to make a huge, a huge impact as long as the, uh, the physical screen of the device is, uh, has glare and is, um, not is is basically emitting light rather than reflecting light. And so for me like 
I could read a book on my iPhone. I have read books on my iPhone or and, and like the 10s Max is bigger, so that's nice. But for me, the reason you get a Kindle is one, no interruptions, no notifications, um, no one swipe away from other apps. It's a focused device. It's got very long battery life. Um, and the screen, the e-ink screen, it is, there is a, there is a light you can turn on in the dark, but it is a reflective thing. It is, it is white with black lettering on it that works like paper. The sun shines on it or a light shines on it, and then it bounces back in your eyes. And that is a very different feel than a phone screen. And so, uh, is that a niche uh, set of desires? It is. That's why the Kindle is a niche device. But I do think that um, nothing in the trends of the phones in the last few years has really made me think, oh, well, this is going to kill the Kindle. The existence of tablets and phones makes the Kindle's audience much smaller because they have to get a dedicated device. And you can read on these devices just fine. But yeah. I would I, – nothing has come – I mean – Tell, talk to me when Apple makes an iPad or iPhone that has no glare and doesn't feel like it's shining a light in my face and I'll talk, you know, but until then, <laughs> I, I just don't think that the, a bigger screen for most people, a bigger screen uh, or a higher DPI is what drives people to the Kindle. Josh asks, do you have any idea? on how to distribute live photos. I'd like to freely distribute some movies that I've made into live photos with, that I've shot with my drone. But when I export them, I get JPEGs and MOV files. So two parts to this. One, this wasn't a question, but it was something that I thought to myself, can you actually make live photos that weren't photos? Turns out you can. I found an app. I think this is an API. I didn't find many apps that could do this, but I found an app, it's a pretty cool app that called Into Live, where you can take movies and turn them into native live photos. Just a part of this question, I thought I could give some use to everyone. It exists. It's a free app. Uh, it has a bunch of ads in it, but you can remove the ads of an in-app purchase, and it has extra functionality. Look pretty cool. But the sharing part seems trickier because, I mean, I've seen people talk about this, but I, I couldn't really find anything definite. You may know as the, as the, the photos person that when you share uh, live photos you can share them individually, right? Like I can send you an iMessage and you can see the live photo or I can uh, send you it via AirDrop and you get the live photo. But there doesn't seem to be a way to allow for that file to be downloaded en masse. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. This is the li I feel like live photos for such a fun feature, Apple has done a really bad job of um, of making it available to other people, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't been able to find a reliable way that will allow you to share them. Uh, like, to, to like for example, like you could share a Dropbox link to a file because whenever I try and export them to Dropbox, I get that, like a JPEG and a movie file. Like you get yeah. both. And I've tried it with the HE... I've tried it with like um, the the settings for HEIC on and off and, and I couldn't really find a way to do it. You can make a um, uh, an album and share it, um, but it's yeah, it's not. It's a mess. Is is my my short version of it? Is it, it's a mess, and I wish that it were better, um, but it's not. And uh, there are cases where you can make a shared album, um, and sh and send people a link. That's a new, I think, feature. Um, I'm actually trying to do it right now. 
where you you uh, uh, right you can generate an iCloud link for a photo right yeah via the new sharing stuff interesting that could that could maybe do it right all right so I'm making an iCloud link to an image now and I'm gonna send it to Jason via iMessage and if you can download it then potentially this is a way to do it I guess the, probably the best thing for you to do is to I don't know, not open it on an iOS device because then it just goes straight to photos. But Yeah, no, I just opened it on my Mac and mm-hmm. I have an image and it is a photo. Not live? Not live. There you go. So Who knows? Boo. Yeah, we tried. Uh, mo- I use motion stills to turn um, live photos into animations, animated yep. chiffs. Or is it pronounced shifts? I don't know. Chiefs. He, no, not heaps. Those are different. Heaps. <laughs> so basically, we will throw it to the upgradians. If anybody knows a good way to do this, we'd love to know. So the ability to try and maybe give somebody a link or some kind of downloadable format, which is a native live photo. We've tried with this sharing thing, and it seems like still, like if Jason picked it up on his iPhone, it will probably work. But we want it so like you could tweet a link and people could download one of these awesome drone photos from Josh. So let us know. You can tweet at us, let us know, or email, however you would like. Nepali wants to know, Jason, now that the time capsule is dead, are there network drives available that are time machine friendly, or can time machine back up over the internet? I, I know that there are um, network attached storage devices that offer time machine compatibility. So the idea there is that you've got a server in your house that's a it's a storage server and you can back up to it. Um, so those do exist and you just have to look for time machine compatibility on a NAS device and they can be a little pricey, but I have I have uh, one and a lot of people I know have them. And the nice thing about them is it's a huge amount of storage. And if you've got an Apple device with an SSD, you probably don't have a lot of storage. So you can offload your old files and stuff to that server. It's there. They're there if you need them, but otherwise not. And they will do Time Machine. And um, the ones that are compatible will let you set a, a size for the partition that you want for Time Machine so that a Time Machine doesn't expand. It'll expand to fill as much space as you give it. So you can give it a very limited amount. And then it will, when it gets to the end, it'll delete the older files and just kind of keep rolling through the backup. So um, that's the way to do it. Time Machine, I don't recommend. There are some plugins that claim to do this, but like I don't recommend trying using Time Machine as an internet backup. It's not built to do it that way. It's built to be on a local network or, or on a uh, external drive on a local device. If you want to do internet backup, you should use a, a, a service that's built for that, that's uh, connecting to their remote servers and compressing data and doing all the things that it needs to do. Luke wants to know, do you buy AppleCare for your Apple Watch? I don't. Why is that? I don't buy Apple Care for almost anything. Although I did buy it for my for my iPad, um, my iMac Pro because it was so expensive that I was mm-hmm. like, you know what? And and the and the Apple Care was not <laughs> so expensive. So I, I for that one I decided to do it. But um, because I'm I'm a person who had a, a big spider in my iMac screen at one point, right? Yeah, like, so I'm like, yeah, all right, yeah. we're gonna do that. But for my Apple Watch, I just don't. I don't buy Apple Care. I have been fortunate that the amount of destruction that has happened of devices in my life has never cost me anything close to what I would have been paying on Apple Care. And so my, I'm, I just, I don't have a negative energy field around me that causes me to break devices all the time. And so I feel like for me, I know people who are like that, and they are. They are very happy to use Apple Care. I just have never been one of those people, so I don't. I don't buy Apple Care in general. In fact, I think the first time I've ever bought Apple Care for anything was the iMac Pro. 
I buy uh, Apple Care for my iPhone. I put one for my XS Max. I would buy Apple Care for a watch as well, just because it seems breakable. It is breakable. It's a small thing. Like it's a small little device, right? Like that feels like you could, you could, you could knock it against something and scratch it, break it in some way. Like it feels like a. A, a, an easily breakable breakable device, I should say. Um, and if Apple Care was is within your budget, like I recommend it. I would, I would always say, look at it, look at the the how this works. Right. One of the reasons that I bought Apple Care for my uh, 10s Max is because of how expensive it is to replace even the back glass now on these phones. Um, so I did it because you get a couple of like accidental damage things right now included with with the the Apple Care. I mean, you have to pay a small amount for them, but it, it feels like something I want to do, especially after destroying my iPad Pro as I did recently. So uh, I'm a little bit, little bit, I'm warming up to Apple Care a little bit more because I looked at how, right. how expensive it would be to replace our iPad screen, and not for me. Steph asked, yep. how does international roaming work on the Apple Watch Series 4? Do I need to set up a new provider if I travel abroad? Will the watch work without a cellular connection? Yeah, here's how it works. It doesn't. It doesn't work. It does not work. So you can't roam internationally on an uh, Apple Watch. That just is not a feature. So yep. you'll be in your home country. It'll work there. When you go overseas, just turn it off. It won't work. Um, maybe one day it will be different, but that is a level of complexity in terms of how it's connected to your phone and all of those things that it's just, it does not work. So don't try. And will it work without a cellular connection? Sure. It'll work great. Uh, like the non-cellular Apple watch does, which is it will be tethered to your Apple watch via Bluetooth and or Wi-Fi. And finally today, Landon asks, do you know how the iPad tracks apps for screen time? If you're using picturing picture and or split screen. So, I thought I knew the answer to this. I asked Federico, and he confirmed my suspicion um, that it tracks them all at the same time. So if you have Safari and Google Docs both open, they're both getting tracked as being open in screen time. So that is, that's the way that I believe it to be. That's the way he believes it to be. It matches with my own testing yeah. uh, that it's tracking everything, which I think is the best thing to do. It sees everything. Everything. If you would like to send in a question for Ask Upgrade, just send it to tweet with the hashtag AskUpgrade, and it goes into a document for us to pull out in the future. Um, again, we're going to be in person next week recording Upgrade, so if you have any questions that you think would work nicely for that environment, send in a tweet with hashtag AskUpgrade. So we should talk about that. So. Next week, me and Jason are going to be in Chicago doing a yes. live show. Uh, yes. Tickets sold out a long, long time ago. So if you yes. have a ticket, great. Hope to see you there. But here's the thing about this. Oh, boy. We're expecting an Apple event at some point before the end of this month, right? I feel like that that is a thing at this point. We believe, I, I still believe... Uh, at this point, I don't think it's going to be next week because the I in that instance the invites probably should have gone out last week. They should probably have already gone out if they were holding it next week, which me, which is good for us in terms of me being in Chicago instead of out here for an yep. Apple event. Great. But um, it does suggest that uh, yeah, I I think we are hoping uh, that it will be the last the last week yes, of October I am. because because. 
So here's the thing. If you if by the time you're listening to this, Apple has announced uh, an event for the week of the 29th, which is now what we would, I guess, expect and hope, that means the next episode in Chicago will be a live draft. Uh, it's hard to imagine what would happen <laughs> if that lines up, right? The idea that we would be drafting an Apple event live on stage. Very excited about the potential. I don't know of a if I can draft. I, I don't know if my if my heart can take it. Oh my goodness! Wouldn't that, that be, would be a lot of fun? So oh. that is what we hope will happen: is that there will be a live draft. Now, in the event, so we just want to put this out there because we're saying that we're recording next week. In the event that there is an Apple event next week, right? Like, doubt it, but just in that event, we are still going to be doing our show in Chicago. Right. But we will record Flophouse style, an episode that will be a special that will come out probably in November. Yeah, it'll be an evergreen-ish yep. episode where we can talk about a topic that is not based on the news of the day. Because the, the thought here is, if they do an Apple event next week, we will delay the real upgrade. Mm-hmm. And do it after the Apple event, as we because, do. Because, you know, recording an episode one day before an Apple event is never a good idea for this show. It just because we'd be too excited about the Apple event. I did that once with the talk show where we did a two-hour episode that was released like four hours before an Apple event in which we speculated on the Apple event. And I thought, wow, no. this episode has the smallest expiration date the nearest expiration date of any podcast I've ever done because in four hours and you have to listen for two hours, it will <laughs> that be is such a narrow window. It will be useless. So, so if that happens, then we will come up with something very clever and funny that is not tied at all with, um, with news. And you'll hear that episode, uh, Down maybe Thanksgiving week or something like yeah. that. But, um, but, but we're all hope. crossing our we're, fingers we're crossing here our for fingers. an event announced for the week of the 29th this week sometime live so that we can draft. do a live, live draft, draft live episode draft. Just on stage the in excitement Chicago. level of me. I might combust on stage. I'll be I so may excited. have to walk off at various points and just like uh, <laughs> like breathe Put some oxygen. Put your water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, um, very excited about the potentials here, but nevertheless, no matter what we do, we're really excited about doing the first ever live with an audience episode of Upgrade. Yeah. Um, so that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so we hope to see you all there. But otherwise, we will be back next week. Come Apple event or high water, we'll be back next week. Uh, until then, thanks so much to our sponsors, Squarespace, Pingdom, and Green Chef. You can find Jason online at sixcolors.com. He's JasonL on Twitter. I am iMike, I-M-Y-K-E, on Twitter and Instagram. You should follow me there. This show is a part of Relay FM. We have many shows at Relay FM that you may enjoy. Go to relay.fm slash shows for that. The show notes for this week are upgrade at relay.fm slash upgrade slash 215. Until next time, Jason Snell. Say goodbye, Jason Snell. <laughs> See you next week, Chicago. <laughs> <laughs>